This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Hello, and with me, Cam Raslan, today we have the return of He's a Consultant, which is the job that I want, but no one ever offers me it. <laughs> um, he works for Naughty Labs. I, I've made that joke before, Kajin. Yes. Uh, it never grows old for me. Naught Labs. On Kajin. Hi, guys. Great to be back. Uh, great to have you. And we have a first timer here. She is a playwright, writer, and translator, Adriana Manan. Hi. Hi. Great to have you here. Uh, Adriana was worried about the, uh, could she perform to the correct kind of level of intellectual heft? And, and I said, what are you talking about? <laughs> um, so our three topics this week. Topic number one is AI. How is it already affecting our lives without us necessarily knowing? Um, and where's it going to go in the immediate future? Because it's happening so fast. Topic number two is technocracy, good or bad. And uh, finally, topic number three is, well, confessions of a translator. Uh, <laughs> let's find out about the translator's art. So with topic number one, AI, there have been some really uh, rapid changes in AI that have affected us in ways that perhaps we just haven't really quite noticed. Uh, and just in the last year or two, and God knows where it's going to go in the next couple of years. So obviously, Adriana, with, with translation, it's been a big deal. Press of a button, you can translate any text. It's not going to be perfect prose, but it's there. Uh, also, chat GPT, I... I, we did an experiment because I've got a book that's going to be coming out soon and, we, and and me and a friend typed in how to promote said book and it just popped out and it was like, wow, this is brilliant. <laughs> I really couldn't argue with it. Um, these are just the ways that I've noticed, but I, I mean, if you're a young person, a student, etc., it's it's going to be making a huge difference. I mean, Kajin, you, you have your finger on the pulse more than I do with these things. How How, how is it changing us? Well... I, th I think, um, you know, I always um, use this analogy, right? Which is that when I got a robot vacuum <laughs> for, my, for my apartment, I started rearranging the furniture and kind of rearranging the house to better suit the robot vacuum. Yeah. Right. So I think in a similar way, um, because of how AI works and, you know, AI, um, it, it, I mean, it's not, it's not like a human being with, which is much more flexible and kind of as common sense. But we will have to basically rearrange the way we speak, the way we input, the way we ask questions to better extract value of AI. So already, you know, with ChatGPT, there are all these people who are literally, their job is to teach people how best to ask questions in a way that will get the best results out of ChatGPT. Similar to, I guess, how people needed to be taught you know, how do you use the correct keywords for Google to get the best results? Mm. And Adriana, in, in the world of translation, it's, it's a lot of people would be saying, I don't need a translator. Um, so I, I, I can never give an objective opinion on this one. Uh, so I'll put it right there. Um, yeah, but I think it can, it depends on what you're translating, definitely. I mean, if it's just like, straightforward maybe casual uh text that yeah i've i've tried um in you know doing google translate and all that stuff and i can imagine um how much better it would be with time and it's like yeah you're not needed but at the same time there's been some i don't know like it also depends on the language right i think um english may be two languages more predominant in europe 
in North America, like, yeah, uh, I think they'd be closer to reaching the we don't need translators point. But for other languages, like, for example, like in with Malay, like I can imagine it's going to take a bit more, a bit longer and a bit more. But how much longer we can be complacent as human translators is what something I'm not sure about. But I'd like to think that we'll still be needed. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you'd like to think that. <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah. uh, but Kajin, also, we don't need no education. I mean, I, I didn't go to college or university, but with, with these tools, I'm, I'm up there. I'm done. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, I, I, I mean, there's already like problems in schools where you know, um, professors and teachers are increasingly like, oh, how on earth are we going to deal with you know machine learning generated essay responses? And and there are some professors in universities who advocate, you know what, people are going to use it anyway. Let's allow it. But then the question is, why did you choose this props? How did you edit this essay? And why did you make these edits from the machine learning translated version? Oh. And I guess similarly, uh, uh, speaking to uh, the point that Adriana raised uh, regarding translation. So I have a friend, his entire business is translating Chinese web novels from Chinese to English. And he, he, you know, he told me that basically you know, nearly half of his work um, is done by machine learning translation. And the bulk of the people and manpower being used is really just editors who understand the finer nuances between, say, a saber and a sword, right? And that is something that the machine doesn't quite pick up on yet. So there is art in the final language because I was thinking that it would become, that language will just become information. And uh, that, that that's yeah. where the strong point will be. And the artistry of the language will fall by the wayside. I mean, I mean, I don't know, Gab Gabriel Garcia Marquez. I don't know if you've uh, Adriana put him into Chat GPT and yeah. see how that comes out. <laughs> yeah, I'd like to do that. I should do that one day. Yeah, but seriously, I mean, it's just, it's just, it's going to be just information, isn't it? And isn't that where we're going to be? Well, okay, where where else will will we be taken with this? So, for instance, in the world of uh, illustration. I think we best best call it illustration as opposed to photography, where you can create images that look like real. And I, I've been persuaded by them. Is it that in the same way that Kajin's talking about student students being quizzed on the choices they made, are we gonna spend more time thinking about, hey, am I being fooled? Mm -hmm. Or are we just just gonna relax into it? Kajin, do you think we're gonna I mean, I, I think it's, uh, to a certain extent, it's, it's going to be inevitable because uh, it's going to start with companies, right? You know, company, like all the bosses are going to be like, oh my God, I'm going to save so much money. I don't need all these people. And, and they're going to, they're going to adopt it first uh, all for purely kind of, you know, efficiency slash cost saving drive. Um, and then I think there'll be a backlash probably later where people are like, wait, but you know, uh, this is clearly like not done by human, and and at this point, people can still tell. So, I, for example, I think recently um, there was a university which um, released a condolence letter yeah. that was generated by AI. Um, uh, it was uh, Vanderbilt, so you know, a pretty prestigious university. But uh, uh, the Vanderbilt University was caught using ChatGPT to write. A letter about to students about a shooting at Michigan State, and 
I mean, this is uh this is one of the the, the world's best universities, right? And I keep saying that, and then you're like, oh, what what is what is what is the department doing if if they're going to be using AI for these sort of things that you would argue need a sensitive touch that are very human emotional subjects? Yeah, but I don't know. We're we're just going to be okay with uh, hearing. And reading things which are all kind of got the same voice, don't we? Mm-hmm. I think so, but at the same time, I mean, and, and I don't know, uh, I might not really have the words to say, but won't really have the soul, no, of the language and the individual artistry. And uh, yeah, no, I've I've been thinking about illustration, for example, and I've seen some examples, you know, just tw- swirling around in social media where. Uh, a plain brief, like, you know, a woman eating salad turns out being really grotesque with, like, the mouth where the ears usually are kind of thing in that sense, you know? So, yeah, it's not not quite there yet. But one thing I wanted to say about language as information, um, I don't know, I think there's the thinking about language where it's not, uh, and I'm not ragging anyone who, who's, like, monolingual or anything, but that thinking that languages are just, like, substitutable words, you know? Like, like what is biscuit? And this is, okay, biscuit in another language. And that's sure, right. that's well and good. That can take you f- uh, uh, for a while. Uh, but it's not like that, right? Like, they're not just, like, a set of building blocks. They're like, let me substitute this with this language, this language. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure there's a there's a branch, there's a, a branch of maybe linguistics or translation uh, which could elaborate it more uh, elegantly. But yeah, just that thinking that it's just a matter of swapping and like substituting, uh, I don't think so. And as you guys were talking, I just had this little sense of, it was giving me it was giving me uh, Y2K kind of vibes yeah. and, and mm. even like IT kind of vibes. And the point I'm getting is like that silver bullet kind of, kind of chatter, you know, in like, in like popular, con- popular discourse. And it's like, this is going to take away everything. We're not going to have jobs and everything. And, uh, not to dismiss like uh, the, the actual developments on the ground, but I'm just like, I don't know. Sometimes I feel that, that every now and then, uh, human beings need like something to talk about and something to scare ourselves about and maybe hype up and speak about hyperbolically. And then we realize, oh, we're still, I don't know, systems are really not that, we're, we're not really living, living such science fiction lives after all. Yeah, yeah. Uh, voice of reason there from Adriana. I don't know, but yeah. yeah no, no, but Little yep. Miss Luddite here, you know, maybe. But, well, no, yeah. not even. I mean, I use my uh, Y2K bomb shelter to store my my <laughs> bicycle that I don't use anymore. So, you know, yeah, quite right. Or your vinyl records? No, no, they're right <laughs> here with me. I've been touching <laughs> distance. Um, I Okay, let's move on. And topic number two on Gajin, technocracy. Yes, the technocracy. So I, I guess, uh, you know, it, it's pretty relevant to the topic that we just discussed, but right, and which is, and, and, and also uh, Adriana, what you brought up about, you know, every now and then there's like a silver bullet and then people get super hyped up about it. But, you know, like technocracy is one of them, right? Like this kind of ideology that began in the 1800s with the Industrial Revolution where they're like, oh my God, you know, we should engineers should be the leaders of society. We don't need politicians. Everything should be decided by engineers and statisticians, right? And I guess nowadays we understand technocrats as just, you know, experts or academics, but it used to mean like a very particular kind of political movement where they advocated rule by numbers, rule by statistics. Um, and I, I guess the, the, the kind of very interesting incident that I'll always remember is, uh, you know, in the 1890s, um, Prudential 
was basically charged uh, with discrimination against uh, African Americans uh, because they were basically charging. They refused to provide insurance to um, African Americans, and uh, they hired uh, this guy called Friedrich Hoffman, who was a statistician, and he published this, you know, big paper looking at statistical analysis and said, "Look, the mortality rates and the standards of living basically demonstrate, um, you know, that." African-Americans shouldn't be insured. And obviously, this is, it was also embedded in very, very kind of white supremacist views. Um, but they basically used the numbers to justify this kind of systemic oppression. Uh, and, you know, the writer, Pinker, W.E. Dubois, basically said, um, you know, the fact that African-Americans die earlier, they suffer more, they're more prone to all these diseases, are the consequences of discrimination and should not justify more discrimination. Uh, but you yeah. know, that, that kind of got lost in the whole numbers argument. But the, the idea of a technocracy is is so attractive to people. Yeah. It's like, let's get rid of these... I mean, politicians, maybe the media can point it out, but politicians do come across as being venal, stupid, uh, crass, whereas... Uh, a technocrat is some kind of machine that went to university and got taught how to do statistics and economics and they wear suits and we should put them in charge. Uh, and I, I think that Singapore advertises itself as a technocracy, doesn't uh, it really? Or even People's Republic of China. You know, we just put the best people in charge of these things. Trust us. Now shut up. Uh, Adriana, are you, uh, are, you, are you swayed by the technocracy argument? Um... I think it would be nice, but I'm sorry, Cam. Like, I'm a I'm a social science graduate through and through. Um, the any thinking that's like you know people are numbers in a sense, you know, and people are just uh, cogs, let's say, or uh, little components to be moved around. It doesn't work for me. Like taking like Karjin's example, um, Prudential, and the and just that that refusal to to ensure like the African Americans because of their health indicators and all. I'm like. No, like, because that thinking is, you look at something as innate as, as yeah. instead of like the outcome of structural deficiencies, right? Like, you can't just put it that way. And um, I just wanted to uh, talk about, uh, I mean, just like a little bit when you guys were talking about technocrats and um, they're usually like highly trained, yeah, right, people in technical fields, right? Um, and Malaysia, I know in the in, in in the circles of people who who look into this, is considered a country that's not technocratic. Like our our uh, yeah, governing class is not like as technocratic as say you know Singapore, China. I've heard um, Taiwan as well has been considered like a technocratic uh, country in that sense. Um, but we do have a, have a tendency to bring in a business people right into into government or like GLCs and all, and that makes me think about that whole. And then was it an article I read years ago where it said a country is not a company? And I'd like to think, I'd like to extrapolate that and wow. be like a country is not a lab, a country is not a yeah, because people have all sorts of different starting points and opportunities. Huh. And and I would argue certain groups that are, let's say, in the leading position or like, you know, the ones that have let's say the best health indicators, for example, that's because they've benefited disproportionately, right? From resources of like health healthy food, good incomes whatever you want, good education. And yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm, I, I'm, I'm a blazing social science scientist here um, in my thinking of like, yeah, there are lots of structural things that humans just, you can't just be like, yeah, 
let's treat this like the way I treated this in my lab when I was doing my PhD or something. There's mm. a, yeah. Adriana and her feelings. Mm, okay. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Feelings yeah. are here to stay. <laughs> hey, but Kajin, you're a, you're a consultant. Therefore, yeah. you're a technocrat. You're, you're, uh-uh. you, you come into the office uh, wearing your fancy suit and say, this is how it should be done. You don't know anything. Well, um, you know, you're, you're absolutely right. I, yeah. I think, um, uh, you know, I, I have to admit that that um, there is a certain, well, I mean, you know. Um, oh, he's stumbling know, now. David I found Graeber, him out, <laughs> David Graeber, um, the league David Graeber called this BS jobs, right? Well, and and essentially jobs that are created in a whole middle manager class that their, their whole job is to, I guess, justify their jobs. Um, but it's interesting that you mentioned that because uh, I guess the ultimate vision of what people think is a technocrat and they're like, oh my God, he should run the world is like Elon Musk, for example, right? Mm. Um, he was like, oh, technology guy. And uh, very notably, um, his grandfather was a leader of the technocracy movement in Canada and was arrested for it because uh, they were advocating a, a non-democratic society. Um, and uh, his grandfather moved to South Africa after hearing that appetite was going to be enforced. But that tells you a little bit about, I think, Elon Musk's kind of heritage. Um, but I think notably, Elon Musk himself is very against this idea of the middle manager of the consultant class. So so it's actually a very interesting contrast between what we think of as technocrats and their further gradations with the, even within the kind of technocratic class. Uh, but, you know, just to point out, I, I think uh, if you want to imagine what a country or, com- or a large um, platform might be like run by purely by this idea of the ultimate genius technocrat and then you can look at Twitter I guess well yeah because, because also Elon Musk is really allergic to criticism I mean, take, oh. he, he has feelings and he, he uh, <clears throat> Adriana I mean we uh... I know yeah I mean at the end of the day people like to say this and that uh, what um, Cetris Paribus what was that Homos economicus, I'm probably like butchering <laughs> my terms. Uh, pardon me, every economist out there. But I'm like, nah, people do not act rationally. Yeah, people are not just, I mean, yeah. and yeah, and then even like in political science, right? And, and you can say like, ah, this is bogus. But people say that, okay, certain countries, like why are they so, but why can't we be like Sweden? Why can't we be like Japan? The first instinct people would say, but they're not multi-ethnic, you know? Like there's a difference in in governance and all of that stuff, which it, which in layperson speak is like they're all kind of the same, right? What they want, their motivations, da 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 da. And the people say, "Oh, it's difficult in a country like Malaysia to to reach that level because we have we have so many ethnicities and races." And yeah, I mean that that could be problematic on certain fronts to say that. But just like, yeah, people are different. People don't act like the way textbooks say they do. And yeah, nah. don't believe the consultants when they tell you that. Just kidding, Arjun. Just kidding. But no, yeah, no, I, 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 I fully agree. I fully agree. <laughs> Yeah, no, Kajin's one of the good consultants. That, there you go. There you go. See? Yeah. 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 Oh, boy. Um, okay. Well, I, I fascinated. Uh, we consult, we'll do consultants specifically sometime, Kajin, won't we? Uh, we move on, though. And in a moment, when we come back from the break, we're going to talk about translation here on A Bit of Culture on BFM 89.9. And we're back with myself, Cam Raslan, Onkar Jin, and Adriana Manan. And now, Adriana, Confessions of a Translator. You translate, well, between, you have a choice, English, Bahasa Malaysia, and Spanish. Correct. 
what are the what are what have you discovered in your journey? Oh, I've discovered something which I find very interesting, and it's interesting in the point where it's an abiding research question, but I don't know uh, where to find my answers. Which is, um, what's that branch of linguistics where uh, a language like maintains its steady state, like in its present form, like it's understandable for us in the present, and like for how long, like that that has happened, if if, if that makes sense. Okay, maybe maybe yeah. I'm not doing too well at this, but here. Um, basically, where it came from was I translated a text from 1929. Yeah, okay. It was oh. a it was a Malay text, Jawi. I translated it to English. Okay, so there was that one. Okay, so let's text A. And then recently, I translated 16th century writing from like uh, Spanish voyages to Southeast Asia in Spanish. So from 16th century, um, and then I translated it to Malay. And then I realized that the language that the Jawi, the Malay. Um, compared like from the 1920s was more different was more difficult to translate and more difficult to understand for me in 2023 compared to the Spanish from the 16th century and yeah so maybe the answer could be like um Adriana that's because the 16th century the Spanish manuscripts were edited before I don't know you know so that aside I'm just wondering what's that branch of linguistics where you talk about I guess the endurance of the steady state of a language in the present mm. like yeah, like how how much has Malay changed? Like if you looked at Malay and Spanish in the 16th century, how different are they to their present day forms kind of thing? Mm -hmm. I, and I'm sure there's a branch of linguistics there. I can't, I don't even know what to put into like my search engine to try and, and, and tease it out. But yeah, that's something that's, that's, that I've discovered really. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, um, that's a fascinating idea. You may have come to the wrong place to find an answer to that one. <laughs> but uh, perhaps Kajin has an answer. Um, By the way, Kajin's the only one who comes on this show who is allowed to use Google whilst on air. We, we, uh, otherwise, Better Culture doesn't doesn't do that. But he's <laughs> Googling right now. I am literally doing that. I'm like, yeah. what the is just done? Come on, fr a free, free consultancy, please, Kajin. Oh, uh, yeah, no, I can't figure it out either. But <laughs> I mean, I completely understand what you mean. Um, but I, I guess the question is, um, you know, in, in the course of your, of your, your kind of... Um, so, so where I come from is like um, recently, um, what I've been working on in in my spare time is a book, um, which is um, Romance of the Three Kingdoms. Okay, but it was written in the nineteen twenties, thirties in oh. Baba Malay. Basically, it was translated by a Peranakan Chinese businessman. Oh. Uh, you you know just love the book, and he translated from Chinese to Peranakan Malay, and you know Baba Malay has all wow. sorts of like. Hokkien words and some kind of um, idiosyncrasies in, in the way they use certain Malay words. And I, I guess, uh, you know, pertaining to that question of the morphing of language and the change of language, um, you know, what I understand is like the main branch can be quite static, but there are always these little kind of sub-communities that branch out mm -hmm. and come up with all sorts of interesting kind of patois or uh, uh, variants of their own. Yeah, I, I I'm I'm fascinated by the subject, uh, the the linguistics and how it changes. And and uh, a couple of things that I've I've noticed. One is, for instance, I have a friend of mine who is uh, Malaccan Portuguese, uh -huh. uh, Malaysian, obviously. She she can speak Portuguese. One of the few people who can now speak Portuguese. Uh -huh. And she was saying that her Portuguese from Malacca is very similar to Brazil, Brazil's Portuguese, but very different from Portuguese as spoken in Portugal. Um, which I think reinforces what Kajin's saying. But in a way, their Portuguese, the Brazil stroke Malaccan Portuguese, is is older 
than present-day Portuguese, which has evolved through, I don't know, just through slang and, and language. I mean, I've noticed it. I, I grew up in England, but I, I left in 1990. When I go back, I can really hear how the, the language has been changing um, so rapidly. Yeah. Uh, the way that people pronounce things, but also, as with all languages, words become shortened and things drop away. So perhaps when 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 uh, part of the community goes somewhere else, they would maintain that <laughs> the original length of words, say. Whereas in the home base, it it shortens, shortens, shortens. Um, and and I do believe that certain languages, like say say Chinese um, and Thai, I think, kind of these tonal languages, have grown old without too much interaction with oh, the outside world. Yeah. And and that that kind of can ossify the language, but also the, the tonal languages have developed because the words were once very different from each other, but they've just dropped away, dropped away, dropped away. I think um, no, I want to go back to that first thing you said about how the, your friends finds that uh, Malaccan Portuguese is closer to Brazilian Portuguese, but not like the Portugal Portuguese. Um, I read somewhere on Twitter, I don't remember who said it. But they were just talking about how diaspora communities often retain an older version of a language mm. because yeah, they're cut yeah. off, right, from the homeland, which is where, like, I guess, like the little petri dish of language, uh, which I find very fascinating. So now I'm like, often I'm I'm almost like curious to listen to, let's say, the Malay communities in like Cocos Islands or wherever, no. and just try to be like, oh, what's your Malay like? Let me listen and hear mm. compared yeah. to us. And I mean. I don't know. It, it, I mean, Malay nowadays, like the slang Malay, uh, <laughs> it's really hard to understand. Um, I find, um, and uh, I can already feel that I can already like date myself in terms of like, oh, I'm of this age, I'm of this vintage because these certain Malay words are what I used to say, and people don't say it anymore. And I and I can tell that oh, I'm the I'm the not very hip person, older person nowadays in terms yeah. of language. But yeah, I'd just be curious to that that question of it almost gives that the image of you become like a little island cut off, right, from mm-hmm. from from the source. Um, I'd rather you speak. Origin. You speak to the the two biggest languages in the world, English uh, and yeah, Spanish. I think so. I don't know. Is Mandarin? Does Mandarin pip one of them? I don't know. But yeah, but yeah. Mandarin I, I just... is, is is spoken essentially in one country. I mean, a little bits uh, and pieces mm, here and there. But Spanish. Right. Is absolutely a global language. So you yeah. you have been exposed surely to various types of South American Spanish, yeah, and yeah. Spanish Spanish, yeah. And I mean, it must be they are mutually intelligible. Oh yeah, they are, but they're very right off the bat. You can tell then somebody's uh, speaking Spain Spanish or Latin American Spanish. Okay. Um, for example, I mean the 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 the, the easiest one is uh, in Latin America. The this one pronoun is not used at all. The vosotros. Which is like the informal plural, yeah, informal plural way of addressing people is completely dropped in Latin America. Um, like you can see, like I, I saw a book. I mean, I consider the U.S. part of Latin America. <laughs> yeah. uh, I saw a textbook, a, a Spanish textbook there, like, uh, and then instead they drop completely that verb, and then you can tell ah, this came from Latin America. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's that, for example. Um, but then also some of the some countries. Uh, I think some countries in Central America, uh, and also I know Argentina, um, they re- they they use a different, like a more like a hybrid uh, uh, pronoun, like the voceo, um, which is they use then for singular for a friend, uh, yeah, uh, yeah, informal uh, singular uh, pronoun. So yeah, no, it's very different. 
Um, and, and and this is where confessions, right? Confessions of a translator. Um, one of those shows on the streaming services. If it's from Spain, I'm gonna need subtitles. Really? Uh, my, yeah, yeah, and it's quite common. And 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 I'm not a native speaker, but I've spoken to yeah my native speaker friends. I have friends from Mexico, and they were like, yeah, Adriana, like. If is that vocabulary or it's, structure it's just, or I, I, yeah, accent? It's, vo- it's vocabulary and accent, I think. Yeah, then, it's then. not the standard uh, Spanish. Like, yeah, I think uh, I know a few of them have said, um, like Mexicans. Okay, so they're, they're my Mexican friends, they said uh, the Chilean Spanish is difficult for them. Like, they need subtitles sometimes. And um, yeah, Spain, Spain Spanish. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's a whole hodgepodge. And uh, interestingly... I saw somebody write this again. So, sorry, this person, I forgot who you were, who you are, but they said that um, Spanish, unlike French, French has a bit more of like, a, apparently like a body, like authoritative body of the language. Mm, Academy Francaise. And Spanish doesn't really. So although there's the Real Academia Espanol, um, but they, yeah, but then they say that um, in different countries, like it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's more of a hodgepodge uh, in the Spanish speaking world from country mm-hmm. to country. Mm. Uh, yeah. deal with that chat gbt there you go yeah, <laughs> yeah because yeah one word no seriously like one word that can be like a cute like term of endearment can be a cuss word in another country like yeah, that's yeah. how in, like in spanish yeah 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 i can't right. say it on air because i don't know it might be spanish well, speakers here in well, it, but it, it might please our south american audience yeah we're big in colombia <laughs> uh, there you go. Didn't you know? Oh, okay. Um, uh, okay. Well, we'll we'll move on. But uh, seriously, though, do you have any insights, Kajin, in terms of perhaps how things are going to go? Yeah. Well, I mean, um, um, what, what I was thinking about when when Adriana, you were talking about the kind of some how some languages are preserved okay. and kind of remain perhaps more static than others. Okay. I did think about this role of the authorities, right? And of this central body. It's like how we make a buzz every year. Oh my God, this a word was added to the Oxford English Dictionary. Mm-hmm. You know, tweet, for example. And, um, you know, I mean, it, it, make, it makes a lot of sense in the context of, you know, even, for example, the, 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 the rift that only started post-independence between uh, Malay and Indonesian, very much a result of, the one Bahasa dan Pustaka and, and the various nationalist kind of uh, authorities. And even in China, for example, um, you know, um, it, it, this is kind of interesting, but, um, you know, the, there used to be a huge debate in the 1910s and 1920s in China about Chinese characters. Uh, there was a big movement of um, literary Chinese people, uh, Lu Xun, one of the chi- greatest, considered one of the greatest Chinese novelists of his era. He's, he very famously said, that if Chinese characters do not disappear, China itself will perish. He viewed Chinese characters as an essential roadblock to China being educated and literate. Because, I mean, he's also speaking in a period where I think more than 90% of the population of China was illiterate, right? Um, So, but obviously, then all sorts of these machinations, very much from a central government perspective, institutions were brought in and that's why Chinese is the way it is today right um, yeah so yeah. yeah okay so uh, watch what, mind your language and uh, see <laughs> and, uh, seriously think about how it's changed in your own lifetime I mean literally a couple of years you can feel it changing uh, w- we move on though to the final part of the show recommendations where we recommend something that we think might be of interest and my recommendation is a little bit oblique um, 
But I think, Adriana, you might be able to help me out here. I, I'm fascinated by the First World War, uh, 1914 to 1918, and I'll read just about anything. And uh, so I'm reading this book now, which has been on my kind of reading list for years, Ernst Junger, Storm of Steel. Uh, he was a German, he, he had been a German soldier, and he wrote about the trenches, the trench warfare, as it was happening. And it's been fascinating for me to be able to compare how Germans write about, wrote about the the conflict. And the British authors I'm much more familiar with were right across the trend, right across no man's land, how they wrote about it, and very different. But equally, as I'm reading this, I'm wondering if I'm reading the translator or and am I reading Ernst Junger? Because the translator in this one, I feel like he's he's putting a lot of English idioms into it that I think I don't think Germans say that. Uh and I don't know, it, it feels like it's being ironed out. And so I'm, I'm continuing reading because now I'm reading it just for information and I'm not really trusting the translation. But maybe I shouldn't be doing that. I, I, I can't go back to the German. I can't read German. I mean, Adriana, do you think that's a thing? Is that a thing? Yeah, it's a thing. Um, uh, don't, don't quote me on the terms, but there's something in, in translation where are you trying to like, are you going for foreignization or familiarization? Um, yeah, my, but it's that's it. Like, do you retain uh, the the original languages, expressions, and maybe uh, other yeah details that make it sound to the uh, target language readers that mm, this doesn't sound like it it came from our language, um, or do you try your best to to adapt and be like, oh, such and such and such expression can be like I don't know, an apple that kicks the doctor away, so let's use that instead. Mm. Um, yeah, so that's the other that's the other strategy. Uh, I know, I know. Nobody asked me, but I'm more of a foreignization kind of translator. I kind of yeah. like it. Like, what's the point of translating from a language if you don't want to keep a little bit of its, you know, its yeah, it, idiosyncrasies? Absolutely. Uh, yeah. yeah. I'm. I mean, I'm okay with not immediately understanding. Yeah. And 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 knowing that people are different culturally. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And then then I have to make the effort to find out what's that about. Mm -hmm. Uh, whereas if it sounds like there was an English guy who can't ha kind of happened to speak a bit of German in in a German trench writing this thing, it's like, I, I, what, what's the, I don't get that. Okay, so I don't know what my trans what my translate what my um, recommendation is per se. But I mean, the book itself is very good. Um, it's really terrifying, and it, it's it's it must be exactly how people are experiencing war in Ukraine right now as we speak, a uh, hundred years later, more than a hundred years later. And it's uh, it's it's absolutely terrifying. So there's uh, I don't know. Am I am I recommending Ernst Junger, Storm of Steel, which is very good, or am I recommending just watch out for the translator? Don't trust them. <laughs> um, uh, Kajin, what's your recommendation? Uh, my recommendation it will be a music album, but it's an old one, and it just got reissued two months ago, which is uh, Fragments, Time Out of Mind, uh, Bob Dylan. Ah. Yeah, so uh, they they just um, basically um, got together a whole bunch of different kind of uh, bootlegs and fragments and kind of um, studio recordings uh, that he did, you know, way back in the nineties, um, and and have basically put it together, remastered it, and they're very intimate, they're very interesting, uh, and I think kind of any Bob Dylan kind of fan or anyone I I think who's interested. In, in getting to know the persona of Dylan would be very fascinated by this reissue. But you, you are a Dylan fan. 
right? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And when was the original album? Uh, he Googles. Uh, Kajin is Googling. 1997. Uh, the original album? Yeah. That's like yesterday. <laughs> yes, well, I mean, in, perhaps in your terms, Cam. <laughs> no, but in the in in Bob Dylan terms, that's yesterday. Oh, yeah, that's true. That in Bob Dylan's terms, <laughs> it's based on yesterday. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, but it's fairly late in his life. Um, and actually, I'm a fan of his later work. I oh. think they're more pensive. They're more kind of... There's a little bit of darkness in them. And I think he loses a little bit of his... Uh, yeah, maybe a little bit of his charm, but he gains a bit of gruff. Yeah, Adriana, are you a Bob Dylan fan? No, I'm I'm the worst when it comes to pop culture and music. I just listen whatever is like playing on the radio, and I don't have any relationship with 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 singers. Yeah. All right, in that case, I'm gonna I'm gonna claim you for the Beatles. I'm gonna send you a, a yes a, a Beatles <laughs> Red Cross package now. And you, yes, and you, thank you, you thank listen. you, thank you. I that, like Strawberry Fields. Does that count? Am I? Did I get well, that of course right? it does. That's the Beatles. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! I'm oh terrible. God. As oh my I god! Said. <laughs> but Kajin, you know, with the Beatles, with me, it's like an emotional thing. If I hear, uh, you know, a bootleg or whatever, and, and it's just John Lennon saying "Good morning" to George Harrison, I'm in tears. Oh, uh, you know? oh wow! And 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 but whereas with Bob Dylan, I don't, I don't think even right, right. the biggest Bob Dylan fans uh, have that kind uh, of. Connection. I'm like that with uh, with Sting and the Police. Really? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, big big fans of Sting and the Police. All right. Adriana nodding as if she knows what Kajin's talking about. I do. I do. <laughs> I, yeah. I okay. do. Right. Believe me. All right. Uh, Name one song. One song. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, okay. Maybe it's time to move on. Okay. Wouldn't it be amazing if that actually by coincidence <laughs> right? was a title? I wouldn't be um, surprised. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so um, at, and finally, uh, sorry, hang on. What was the name of the the the? Is it a box set? What is it? How does it? Uh, come? It's uh, it's called Fragments: Time of Mind Sessions, the Bootleg Series. Is this a physical thing? Is this like on compact? Uh, it discs? is a physical thing, but it's also available on you know the usual Spotify, Tidal, all the usual channel streaming avenues. Right. Okay, all right, cool. And uh, so finally, Adriana, what's your recommendation? My recommendation, and I have to say thank you to you, Cam, for bringing up the topic of war, because yeah. you said World War One. I'm going to talk about World War Two, and yeah. this is within the ambit of local tourism. I recommend yeah. the World War Two Museum in Kotabaru, Plantain. Yeah. Um, oh. it's, al- it's also known as Bank Karapu. It used to be the Merchant Bank of India building, and because uh, I went there recently, and I learned so much about our history. Um, there's, uh, I mean, did you know, maybe you did, um, and this is a risky endeavor, but did you know that for two years, Kelantan was put under Siamese administration during the war? I did not know that. I was really, thought that was very fascinating. And then they have like oral history snippets of these men who were brought to work on the death railway and how they came back, the different, uh, life path that, that they took. And I learned about, yeah, there's so many things which I, I, it, it let me visualize a bit more and, and better, even like Kelantan geography, just in terms of like how the Japanese advanced and how the British then retreated. Um, yeah, so I recommend Bank Karapu, they call it, or the World War II Museum uh, in Kotabaru, Kelantan to learn more about World War II. Wow, well, mm. I, I had no idea that existed. It's, yeah. a, it's a new Thing. I, haven't, I haven't been to Kotobara for a long time. Oh, no. Oh, no. I think this museum has like, been around for ages. Um, yeah, it has oh. material both in Malay and in English. And, wow. Uh, is it big? Is it small? Is it? Um, it's like your average apartment, I would say, KL apartment. So maybe, okay. if, yeah, it feels that way. It feels like you're walking. The, yeah. Um, 
it can the, the info can of course like as museums do can sometimes get a bit much like like a lot to take in. So I'd say give yourself uh, two hours and you'll you'll be fine. Wow. Um, yeah, it's it's really interesting. Just like yeah, because um, I I just have like a just interest in getting to know a bit more about that, and you hear learn things about like the Battle of Kota Baru. And then all the different the Japanese ships and um yeah it, it, I thought it was very interesting. That's really good. Yeah. Do you know if it's is it a state government thing or a private? Oh thing yeah, it, yeah, it is a state government thing. It's touring it admission. Um, for Malaysian, for Malaysian. There was. I, I didn't seem like there were there were differences, but yeah, right. as a Malaysian, yeah, I didn't really ask, but yeah, it's so uh, it was touring it. Um and yeah, I I'm I'm glad I went and I want to recommend wow. people to go. That sounds uh, really good. Yeah. Mm. Okay, let's make a a better culture road trip to Kodabaru. Uh, cool. <laughs> On it, let's go. Uh, uh, okay, well, that brings us uh, neatly to the end of this week's episode. And it only remains for me now to thank Onkar Jin. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. The the only person allowed to use Google while we are uh, recording. Because <laughs> uh, he's young, you see. And uh, thank you for our first timer, Adriana Manlan. Thank you for having me. This has been fun. Ah, but it's an absolute pleasure. And myself, Cam Rasland, and please join us next week for another exciting episode of A Bit of Culture here on BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.